oh my god we're live what's going on the stock market's back we're here in new york city we got nft in new york city and pride week all happening at the same time behind me so uh, don't be surprised if people jump out of windows and uh, are doing some interesting things um but with that welcome everybody we're gonna do some reverse uh, introductions and order in terms of people are showing up on the show and um, we'll start with john where are you calling in from and what are you talking about today all right so i'm john baird i'm calling from san jose california and co-author of the book Leading with Heart with Edward Sullivan, who is right up there, and uh, very passionate about talking about these five conversations and how they can drive just good cultures and also good business. Excited to be here, Ray. Excellent. Edward, where are you calling in from, and what are we talking about today as well? Hi, Ray. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Edward Sullivan, calling in from New York City. Uh, as John mentioned, we wrote a book called Leading with Heart. And it's really about disrupting the idea that we have to be perfect at the office. Um, you know, we should be able to have emotional conversations and bring our full selves to the office. And that's what we're here to talk about. Very, very, very powerful. Mike, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, Ray, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, so we kind of got the center of the country covered with this group. So, uh, and here to, to really share some, some thoughts and observations, what we've seen around sustainability and business, how to help kind of green the planet as well as improve business performance. So excited, uh, excited to join you guys. Tremendous. Happy to have you here. And Sadish, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Hi, Ray. I'm uh, Sudish, uh, CEO of ThoughtSpot. I'm calling in from California. I want to talk about why data is the language of business and we all should be fluent in it. Excellent. Well, we've got a great group of folks here. This is amazing. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashar, and we will kick it off. Um, El, uh, we'll do the honors for you. So three, two, one, let's go. <laughs> We're live, so let's see. Chief, <laughs> Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World: Surviving and Thriving in the World of Digital Giants. Ray's a regular television business and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. He's also a global sought-after keynote speaker. And Ray Wong to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Vala Asher. As he's mentioned, he's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But as we say every week, it is not about us. It is about our amazing guests and more importantly, and what their accomplishments and what they have to offer. Who do we have to kick off today, Vala? Ray, it's a privilege for you and I to have an exceptional CEO as our first guest. Sudish Nair is the CEO of ThoughtSpot, uh, a modern analytics cloud company. Since joining in 2018, Sudish uh, led the team that uh, transitioned ThoughtSpot into a pure cloud company including launching the company's first SaaS platform, developer experience, and low-code embedded platform. 
Before ThoughtSpot, so this was the president of Nutanix, where he grew the annual revenue rate, check this out, from zero to a billion. <laughs> and he also took the company uh, public. Please follow Sudish on Twitter at S-U-D-H-E-E-N-A-I-R. Welcome, Sudish, to the Shrub TV. Thank you, Vala. It is uh, always awkward hearing people talk about you in glowing terms like that. But thank you. Appreciate you having me. Great to have you. Great to have hey, you. we were really excited to have you here. And uh, I, I know you through uh, Nutanix as well. Some of the amazing work that you've done, um, especially what's been going on. And uh, of course, you know, the, the age of what's been going on from, you know, cloud to hybrid. And now you're actually on the other side of that equation, right? You're helping clients get there and helping take them to that next level. And so really want to spend some time with you talking about what's going on in this decade of data and more importantly, how companies are adjusting, you know, to the shift that's going on. So when you look at companies today, data is critical every business, right? You can't have a digital business without data. What separates leaders from laggards? Look, I think uh, Ray, it's simple. It is courage or lack thereof. <laughs> it's like everything else in the sense that everyone understands that change is happening around us. Most people, well, at least vast majority of people, think of change as something that is happening to them, as opposed to those who say, you know what, I'm going to make the change happen in the way that I would like to see for our customers. Business leaders uh, who have the courage to sort of leap into it, lean into it, they build uh, great companies. Uh, I still remember Wala's company, Salesforce, when they started with that famous or infamous symbol based on how you look at it, put a cloud and crossed it, software and crossed it and said no more software. It was controversial, <laughs> right? But now we don't think of it. So to me, it's very simple. Everyone understands that there is so much data being created. People also understand that, you know, people want hyper-personalized actions based out of it. You know, don't take my data and still treat me like a number, treat me like a person. Uh, problem is, you know, most people have excuses why they should not change. And that courage or lack thereof is the single biggest difference maker that I've seen. Uh, you recently wrote a fantastic Forbes article, a long read that spoke to a lot of dimensions that all business leaders should have on their radar. And you started the article by stating cloud data and artificial intelligence accelerated the pace of disruption. In, in, in this past several years, you noted in the last three years, and, but you noted that in the years ahead, technologies like quantum computing, Web3, and augmented virtual uh, reality, this immersive world, will uh, remake the landscape completely. And all of the references to these new emerging technologies coupled with uh, the, the, uh, the cloud, global social, and AI, is an incredible opportunity for explosive growth in terms of data, as you said. So how has the modern data stack ecosystem changed in the past three years? How will it change in the next three? And, and ultimately, like who's responsible for data? And, and how, how do you access the data within the business in a way where you can create value at the speed of need? Yeah. Look, well, I think... If we are in the business of data, this is an exciting topic, right? Data, 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 people love it. But the reality is if you're not in the world of data or analytics, it's one of the most boring and sometimes even scary topic. <laughs> you know, uh, oftentimes, <laughs> right? most people kind of think that if you don't have a pie chart and a bar chart in the presentation, people think I'm not smart. That's why they put the data out there. We talk about data-driven decision, data this, data that, most people are afraid of data. And what they often do is actually make decisions based on their guts and find data that justifies the decision they already made. Mm. So when I you know, write about, think about, talk about changes in data, I'm very cognizant of the fact that what I'm talking about might be not resonating with the group at all. So I like to stop talking a little bit about the how and the what, and then speak a little bit about the why. Mm. You know, if it makes sense to answer your question, uh, often the world that we are living in the services are built, products and services. It's built for the masses. It's built for the averages, okay? One example is if you go to London, the taxis were built with a lot of leg space, right? You can stretch your legs. I'm not a you're tall person, but I've seen like really tall people just stretching their legs out. But if you go to New York City, the yellow cabs, you just can't do it. But they have, for whatever reason, a lot of trunk space. Why? Because that's how it was built. We don't settle for that anymore, right? We 
decide what I would need based on the city, what, what I'm trying to do. And then I find the exact car that I need for that moment using Uber or Lyft. That change is once you experience, it is very difficult to take back from. Yeah. What's happening is all consumers are building experiences that are bespoke for them. What yeah. makes sense to them? Because we are all different. Yeah. We are all individuals with likes and dislikes. All of that is possible because I'm giving you my data footprints. Right? I'm telling you as a business that, listen to me, here is what I like and dislike at this point. The worst thing a business can do is to take all that data because businesses are asking for all sort of data. You install an app, it's going to ask you your camera, your mobile phone, you know, location, everything. The worst thing a business can do is to take all that data and still deliver aggregates and average-based services. The reason why people should care about data is because it allows them to get personalized experiences from the business they are interacting with as long as privacy, security, governance are all managed. That's where better computing platforms, faster, cheaper access to data, third-party data, processing on cloud with quantum computing, Web3, those sort of things will actually make a big difference in the coming years. Yeah, I, you know, I encourage. The... Sorry, I encourage our followers to definitely read Sidish's blog. He's a, a Forbes contributor, and uh, he talks about the power shifting to the people, power shifting to the market, power shifting to the business user, and power shifting to the tech stack. And uh, so he very carefully articulates the why and the what and the how. Sorry, Ray. I just, I just thought it's a brilliant article. Well, yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go. And, and I thought, you know, we should talk about that power shift because I think that, that that power shift built on data was a very important piece. So if you can share a little bit more about that power shift, uh, let's start there. So, yeah, look, I think Ray, the, for anything to be more mobile and free, that is, if I should be able to take my data and then move to another provider, it needs to be abstracted from the infrastructure. I mean, that is where things get complex and sort of illogical sometimes or sometimes people think it's too boring, but it is an important topic. The ability for someone to own their data, the mm -hmm. digital footprint that I'm leaving in the world, uh, I am giving to you because I want a better service, but don't misuse it, right? So their yeah. regulations, compliance, and all of those play a part, but technology stacks play a part as well. What I think about is the power shifting is the only way this is going to impact the regulations and the technology stack. Because look, as vendors, we like to hog everything because we want, yes. we want to lock our customers in. I mean, that's the reality. We don't want you to ever leave. All this subscription movement that we have done, it's all with an idea that once you come to me, you will never check out. That, if you need, so what happens is when you see that kind of lock-in, startups think of it as an opportunity because a large vendor's lock-in single monolithic stack is an opportunity for a startup to come and say, you know what, I'm going to take this small part and then I'm going yeah. to abstract it out and give that power to the upstream player. And in this case, you'll keep going all the way to the actual consumer, which means at some point in time, as, as, a, as a digital consumer, we should have a vault that we can run with, live with, take with, and deliver and, and get treated like an individual by a number of different vendors, and, and the power will keep shifting. So the power will shift to the consumers. It'll shift to the business users within the companies. It'll shift to IT people and it'll shift away from the vendors. So that right shift that is constantly going to happen within this, this continuum from data to action is going to be a beautiful thing. And there'll be many companies built. Yeah. You've said, you've said it's, you know, focus on building great products, focus on delivering great stakeholder experience, customer experience, employee experience, partner experience, and then really employee engagement is key to, to success. So how, how is uh, your company, how is ThoughtSpot working with partners across your ecosystem to create this great value for your, for your customers? First, by understanding that it is not about us, it's about the customer experience. I mean, it is an easy thing to say, hard thing to do, which is I think Jeff Bezos put it very well, right? You all focus on me, I'll focus on my customers. That's something that we have to keep reminding. That is, if you think that you have a piece of a solution that will make a customer's experience better, if combined with someone else's solution, we need to make sure that is part of it, mm -hmm. right? And, and doing that is a hard thing because sometimes product people, engineers and R&D, they like to do complex and you know, interesting things. 
without thinking about why am I doing it? Is there a better way for us to deliver this outcome for our customers? So what we have done at ThoughtSpot is actually two pillars, extensibility and embeddability. Extensibility in the sense that in our world of BI, we want everything to be headless. Sometimes machines will speak to machines, sometimes humans will speak, which means everything should be codified, everything should be API driven, everything should be automatable, right? So if someone wants only a piece of ThoughtSpot that we are offering, Go for it. If someone wants the entire enchilada, we'll give it to you for that too, right? So there's a so there's a there's a composability in, in terms of the design principles um, to, to ensuring that you can have uh, the ability to extract the pieces you need to deliver a personalized, high-speed value to your customers. Exactly. So composability within the product, and it's extensible through APIs and other mm-hmm. SDKs, so people can build products with ThoughtSpot as a part of it. Yeah. The other pillar is embeddability, which means as great as ThoughtSpot is that I love the experience and everything, people don't want one more tool sometimes. They have enough tools already, right? So is it possible for us to take the artifacts and then bring it to where they are in whatever app they happen to be in? You know, Ray was talking about Workday. If it isn't Workday, just just bring our analytics to Workday as opposed to trying to force them to come to another product. All of these things will become very simple if you live in their shoes you know if you experience their life as it is a day in the life of a supply chain specialist should not be about thought spot it should be about what are they trying to do for their business where can we invisibly help and augment and accelerate their processes and make life a little more delightful in the world of boring data Uh, if you think that and never forget that all these things will become easy data is never boring you know that i know that <laughs> it tells there's, a story. there's always a data nerd in every crowd, you know. <laughs> it tells a story. It looks at the patterns. It's it's really our ability to actually, you know, bring bring things to life. But you know, what you're talking about is really important, right? We we've seen where cloud has emerged, uh, and we've seen what's been going on in almost every part of the marketplace, right? Cloud vendors came in, disrupted the traditional on-premises vendors, right? And now we're taking abstraction to the next level, right? You're yeah. abstracting data, you're abstracting business business processes, you're abstracting really, you know, how you integrate that data and those ecosystems along other networks. Uh, And it's getting a little bit more uh, exciting because we're able to actually bring data outside the four walls. Um, How often are you seeing companies understand that they're no longer a business about transactions, but about a business around insight? And that insight brokering is what's actually giving them value across the network. It is a great question, Raya. And I will tell you, I'm pleasantly surprised by how even some of the largest, really old companies are actually transforming by understanding and acting on it. Like one of our customers is going to be on your show today, Schneider Electric. They are using ThoughtSpot to uh, change the way they're doing people uh, resource management. Uh, Wells Fargo, the World, you know, they're all changing. You mentioned something about data being uh, not boring. I, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. I'm a huge need. My point is, though, the people who understand data and the people who need action that affects them based on data sometimes don't understand that there is a correlation here. And that is a danger. Like today, for example, Supreme Court came out with this uh, Roe versus Wade uh, reversal. I'm sure there will be emotions on both sides. And in the next few weeks, you will see people using data to tell the story that they want to tell as opposed to letting people figure out the actual data. That is the danger of people not understanding the value of data. The problem is people who speak data, you know, SQL and data warehousing, which is where all the real facts remain because opinions can be massaged. You know, facts, numbers cannot be in reality. The problem is anyone can write. Most people can't do SQL. If you can bridge that, if you can cross that off and say anyone who has a question can ask and get an answer based on uh, everything is abstracted out so that the computing, the formula, the SQL, all is happening like sort of uh, transparently, I think the world will become better. So instead of someone creating a chart that I have to believe because someone forwarded me on WhatsApp or Facebook, I now can actually go to the data. And massive macro decisions like what's happening today because of the US Supreme Court ruling I think people will be a lot more informed if you remove this tax on curiosity on mm-hmm. facts. I think that's where the idea of making data and insights uh, sort of less scary and more democratized will make the world a better place. And that's why I'm passionate about it. Wow. Well said. Well said. So, funny joke. Why is life like an outer join? 
I don't know. <laughs> you, you never know what road to expect. Anyways. <laughs> I'll get you out there. That's, anyway. that's the first time Ray has shared a joke in almost 300 episodes. What's going I like on? like that joke. Too, I'll keep you. I'll make a bunch of sequel jokes. I'll forward them to you. Okay. <laughs> we are here live with Sydney Schneer, CEO of ThoughtSpot. You can follow me on Twitter at S-U-D-H-E-E-N-A-I-R. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you around the valley. So thanks for being on the show. It's been an honor. Thank, Thank you so much. You're terrific. Thank you a lot. A brilliant CEO who obviously is trying to democratize uh, insights and wisdom to ultimately have an impact. Uh, so it's it's great to know. It's all about impact. Yep. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's all about impact. I mean, we all have data, how we use it to deliver impact. By the way, speaking of impact, my next guest represents a company that's world-renowned in terms of positive impact. We have Mike Frazier, Vice President of Sustainability Development at Schneider Electric. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Deserves a hoo-hoo. As Vice President of Sustainable Development for Schneider's Electric Sustainability Business, Mike uh, leads uh, the company's client development initiatives in sustainability consulting and technology services. Schneider Electric has been consistently recognized as one of the world's most sustainable companies, including 11 consecutive years in the Corporate Knights Global 100, CDPA's A-list, and Ethisphere's most ethical companies. Over the past decade, Mike and his team have played critical roles in decarbonization of hundreds of the world's leading commercial and industry companies, guiding them in establishment and attaining emission reduction targets and material cost savings. Talk about such an important work. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike N. Frazier, F-R-A-S-E-R. Welcome, Mike, to the Shrub TV. Thank you, Valak. Great to be here. Thank you, sir. Great to have you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. And one of the biggest topics we've been talking about is really ESGs. Um, and for a lot of our organizations, that it's really a balance between stakeholder and shareholder requirements uh, to get there. But there's a lot more going on, and there's been a lot more interest in ESG. What is driving that? And what is driving organizations to take ESG initiatives to the next level? And, of course, um, bringing it to the forefront um, compared to where we were maybe even three years ago, even five years ago, if we're thinking about that shift. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great question, Ray. And it's um, it's a unique time. I mean, it, it truly we talk about tipping point in a number of different uh, applications, but it feels like we hit the tipping point in sustainability about three to five years ago. And the primary drivers, particularly um, in the U.S., have largely been driven, uh, have been uh, uh really the actions of shareholders and stakeholders to make things happen. And it and even for private companies who desire to go public or even companies that have that that may remain private but they're held by a by a public company that takes sustainability very seriously, the pressures have never been where they are today. Uh, and and ultimately folks are that, that are a bit slow to, to move are being kind of pushed into the sustainability world based on maybe reporting requirements and things like that. Mm -hmm. But but more than anything else, and I, I think our message that I hope is heard loud and clear is the fact that sustainability is good for business. It doesn't need to be a, a sunk cost. It doesn't need to be considered uh, an obligation. It's an opportunity to create more efficiency and, and, to, and to really establish a better run business um, than, than if you aren't choosing to really engage. Uh, Mike, I was just recently in Europe, uh, Western Europe, and I met with um, largest telco companies in the region, largest energy companies in the region. I was surprised to learn, for example, from the telco company, uh, 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 a, a, a zero copper initiative transitioning to fiber and its positive impact in terms of ESG. Uh, solar panel, uh, floating uh, solar farms, uh, uh, massive investments in EV charging stations throughout various countries and, and, and its impact. So certainly top of mind with every CEO that I met in, in Europe. Can you, uh, for our audience, like what can organizations take in terms of physical action, what can they take to reduce their carbon footprint? Any advice to folks that are not thinking big long-term initiatives, what can you do today? 
yeah to to to, to, to scope one, not even scope two and scope three yeah so well three is hard yeah, <laughs> yeah. three is hard and, and it's funny because a lot of times companies want to start with three um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it help us green our supply chain but um but i, I think it's a great question and, and it's sort of some of its infrastructure right so you do have some uh, as we've looked at different telcos making that kind of a move is is probably one of the more material moves that they could make um, the challenge is organizationally, you know, you, that, that's a pretty big investment. I mean, that, that really takes step change within the organization to make that move. So you have to have organizational buy-in at, at, at an executive level, board level to be able to do that. Um, I think uh, the other thing I'll say too, and I think El may have a, have a, a chart we could put up. W what happens a lot of times and, and you look at the different elements here. So we've got sort of those driving forces. We talked about what's making folks move. You've got some of the foundational elements that, that need to be put in place. And we'll talk about that. But oftentimes executives, as we engage, mm -hmm. want to go right to the actions, right? Where can you make, where can I make a material impact? Um, and, and it's all about action, right? I don't want to just sit and, and, and talk about this. We want to do something about it. And action is obviously important. But if you try to take action, so for instance, where do you make the most material impact if you want to go net zero? Um, you would you would invest in utility scale renewable energy and, mm -hmm. and do that in a in a significant way, largely through uh, uh, virtual power purchase agreements. So the ability to to really leverage brand new assets in a way that's meaningful and additional uh, to the grid. And, and it's a big investment. In order to do that, you kind of have to step back along that wheel and have the foundational work in place to really do uh, get strategic buy-in with the investments required to get there. Uh, and by doing so, you set yourself up for success. You're not having to explain to the board why you want to invest tens of millions of dollars in renewable energy. They're telling you, why are you going so slow? We, we need to get moving faster if we're going to hit our net zero targets that we've gone out and, and, and really uh, communicated to. So and you will notice, too, and, and to to the uh, spirit of the entire conversation today, data is at the center of this equation without good data. And, and I, I mean, many times we've had clients come to us and say, help us send some engineers in, take a look at our, our uh, highest emitting facilities and help us reduce those. And we want to take a look at the data first. And if the data is not right, we'll push pause and focus on getting the right data because inevitably reporting's coming. The SEC rule is, is going to require more folks to report uh, than ever have before. And without immutable data, uh, you're, you're really finding yourself in a worse position, maybe had you done nothing at all because you're reporting uh, with incorrect information. So data is at the, the core of this whole uh, enterprise of sustainability, uh, which is very topical based on, on the conversation we're having today. As the title of your slide suggests, data governance actions. Absolutely. It is. Well, yeah. And, yeah. It, and, it, and the other thing on there that's really important is it's a journey. You know, it's it's uh, it, it really is about engaging at the right level. You know, we 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 serve. We're fortunate enough uh, to serve almost three thousand companies, about a third of the Fortune five hundred on their sustainability journey, and everybody's at a different place. You know, and it, and and so it's it's important to remain engaged. And if they're at the beginning, then finding all right, let's let's chase data down and get out of, out of Excel spreadsheets and get on a common platform. Uh, and then to be able to use that and, and cleanse that data in such a way to then take action around that. So um, it is a it's a journey for folks. A lot of times people are scared to jump in because they are at the beginning. Uh, but there's a, a pathway to getting there that's uh, that's awfully important. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. What I really love about the slide is, is really that conversation that you're talking about here on actions and impact, right? From verified emissions reductions to renewable energies and clean tech to enterprise efficiency. I mean, that's really what drives, you know, what organizations need to, to have that conversation and get that started. Um, one of the things that's related to that is, is really the conversation about how to actually, you know, take actions that are pragmatic without an effort becoming a sunk cost. Using that methodology that you're talking about there, what do you do to, to avoid that? Because there have been so many efforts in the world of sustainability that have turned out to be a sunk cost. And people are really trying to make sure that they're doing things that are, you know, win-win. Yeah, absolutely, Ray. Great question. And it's, I'd say a couple of things. Uh, sequence matters, right? So, mm -hmm. so doing things in the right sequence, 
will set you up for success. Um, and the second one is oftentimes folks want to pilot a, a solution and maybe they pilot too early or they pick too few facilities to pilot off of or, or too small of a subset. And in doing so, maybe they have some challenges right out of the gate. And, in, and, and with failure comes the, the resistance to try to try mm. another alternative, right? So I think it is, it is about uh, staying focused. It, it's it's yep. about really driving that action in a meaningful way and getting the foundation in place to ensure success over time. Governance, you know, we, we mentioned that as well. Mm. Having the right governance in place to be able to use that data in the right way to then continue to evolve over time. All of those things are, are critical to, to really having staying power in that space. Mike, for the first time in uh, Salesforce's history, uh, we were founded in March 8th, 1999. We added a fifth core value. Um, our core values up to last year were trust, customer success, innovation, and equality. And this year for the first time, we added sustainability. Uh, where we view our stakeholders as employees, customers, partners, communities, and the planet Earth. So uh, incredible uh, commitment, deliberate focus, investments towards uh, our fifth core value. But there are some companies who are not as eager, as enthusiastic to, to take action. Um, so what is your advice to, to these companies in terms of what's the cost of inaction? What if companies just ignore and, and focus on other priorities. What's the cost to them as a business and the stakeholders that they serve? A, a great question. And we love salesforce.com. We, we uh, <laughs> in fact, it, this is not a shameless plug, but I do have, have the book back here behind the cloud. So oh, yes, yes, 2009, yeah. our, our founder's yeah. first book. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> so uh, it, just a fascinating, fascinating company. Um, so, uh, the cost of inaction today is going to be different tomorrow uh, and different from five years from now. There were many companies that we've talked to over the last, you know, 15, 20 years that were uh, really resistant, uh, maybe even challenging the fact that climate change really exists. And where we saw, I, I've seen step change largely has been with the private equity uh, and other large investors that do feel like Salesforce, that do feel like Schneider Electric, mm -hmm. really coming in and making investments and uh, ensuring that those same uh, commitments to the planet are, are really cascaded down uh, to the organization. So I think, I think by not acting, you're setting yourself up for for maybe uh, challenges you don't even know will exist based on the who who's investing in your company and and where you're positioned. Also, who you're selling to. You know, we have some clients that came to us basically where they said, "Hey, we're one of Walmart's big suppliers," and they said, "If we don't do something with CDP, we're we're in trouble." So we we've, we've helped them kind of kind of take action there. So it may be it may be your 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 biggest customers that say. You, you, you need to really be a good actor. It's also a chance to play some offense there to say, hey, Walmart, look at what we're doing. And, and as, a, as a supplier, uh, we're, we're really trying to step up our game. But many times over the years, we couldn't get somebody to move. There's now interest. We, we go in and look at who's investing in that company. And lo and behold, 16, 18% of the shares are owned by BlackRock. And it's amazing what that will do in, in, in a real positive way, right? So- uh, that's that's a pretty significant material cost. That was, that, very, that was a very powerful <laughs> powerful memo uh, memorandum that clearly articulated requirements. It, it is, and and that definitely I think was a, a, a an important signal for not, not just large companies, startups, any anybody in business, regardless of your size or, or geography or industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and they they're doing some really cool things too. They're, they're establishing, as, as a lot of companies are, net zero targets, right, at a corporate level and from an infrastructure perspective. But, but companies like BlackRock and leading companies are really kind of cascading those goals and targets down to an asset level, to investment level, to a fund level, yeah. um, which is, is, again, so different. And, and a lot of those things weren't happening a year, two years, five years ago. It's exciting to think about where we are moving. It is material. Um, and it's not material just because folks are saying you have to do it. 
it, it's it's good for business. And and that's really the exciting thing about doing what we do today. We're seeing some different approaches across the board. Definitely Larry Fink and uh, BlackRock have taken that approach. We've also seen the approach that's going on from, you know, the companies from, uh, you know, Charlie Munger and, of course, you know, Warren Buffett uh, taking a different approach, achieving those without the mandates. Uh, but one of the things that's definitely a constant is that the SEC is definitely putting some regulations in place, mm -hmm. right? And we've got SASB, we've got other regulations that have been popping up all across the board. Um, how, what are people doing to prepare for that? I mean, are they ready? Are they in a spot where, you know, they're able to handle the climate disclosure? One of our guys, Doug Henschens, has been covering this. He's been covering the ESG aspect and, of course, the reporting requirements. Uh, what can be done or what are you guys doing? to get ahead of that because it's not easy stuff. It's been pretty complicated for a while and everybody reports it a little bit differently, which makes it a little bit harder in the world of data. It, it is. And, and there are a lot of different external reporting schemes, I guess, that are out there, right? Um, from Ecovatus to, to the CDP, which you mentioned. Uh, yep. Yeah, and and, and uh, a lot of different kind of foundational pieces. I go back to the earlier Part of our conversation data is at the at the core of that right make sure you've got the right data in place wherever you're reporting but the good news is um and the sec rule is still out for comments so there, there's a lot of a uh, lot of effort underway but what appears to be clear is that if you are already reporting to say cdp you're in really good shape when it comes to some of the sec reporting requirements that are coming down the pike close. yep yeah it, re it really is so so that's the good news. And, and I guess maybe the more challenging news, if you're not reporting to CDP, you might want to think about doing that um, and, and jumping in. But it's, you know, we've been part of CDP. We, we report as a company. We also help clients with their CDP reporting. And it is um, it's, it's really cool to see how that organization has evolved over time. A little small office in New York that we visited, heck, it's probably about 13, 14 <laughs> years ago. And now the, the impact that CDP's having on companies is really, uh, really neat to see. Mike, this is my last question. And without really naming companies or organizations, but what are some of the mistakes, big mistakes, uh, oh, yeah. that you've seen companies make with their strategy, with their ESG strategy? Um, and how can how can companies avoid these pitfalls? Good question, Vala. I'd I'd say um, maybe a couple things pop to mind. Uh, I mentioned earlier companies trying to move to action too quickly mm -hmm. without having a, a good foundation of data, um, and we we've seen that happen. Generally, um, maybe some a, a course correction has has got things back on track, so it hasn't necessarily been devastating, but it's been costly. Um, and, and has caused some companies to maybe, at least from a finance perspective, discredit certain options that are available to make an impact, uh, both economically, but also uh, from an emissions perspective. So I think, I think being mindful of that sequence is awfully critical. Um, and then beyond that, I think it's, it's overstating, I, I've, we, and not so much now, but sort of blindly stating uh, goals, objectives, targets without doing the fundamental work and establishing mm -hmm. a roadmap or a baseline to, to determine even if that's realistic. So um, having uh, that, that foundation of fact uh, to have governance in place to be able to measure it over time um, makes a big difference. Science-based targets and having more meaningful methodology around how to set those targets has, has changed it a, a bit. Um, but, but whatever it is, making sure that you've got the way, a, a way to measure it and, and determine the impact and, and then continue to stay with it, to have a program, to have a CSO or somebody there in place to really drive that program over time is probably as critical as, as anything. So I just want to recap your last sentence. Should all global companies like Schneider have a chief sustainability officer in order to drive a strong, healthy strategy? Yeah, a good question. I, I, I think they do. They may not call them a CSO. Um, mm -hmm. And we've certainly seen the CSO ranks just grow exponentially over the last yeah. five years. Yeah. But, um, but you, you have to have an owner. You have to have somebody yeah. whose responsibility is to do that around governance. Because um, and, and a lot of times companies may try to try to distribute those responsibilities. And I think that's a good thing. You want to have different divisions or parts sure. of the organization doing that. But Somebody's got to own the governance to pull that together. Yeah. Um, one of the cool things Schneider did years ago, and Schneider's a really big company, 
So how do you yeah. move the battleship right in, in, in the waters of sustainability over time? And they created a planet and society barometer. I remember that when I when I joined the company about 10 years ago. And I thought it was really cool to have these different elements that were meaningful mm -hmm. all across the ESG spectrum where you could measure and deliver it. And, and at that time, they made the decision that every time we're reporting our financials, we're reporting our sustainability KPIs and how we're doing in response to the targets and goals. And that's evolved over time, but it's it's a key piece. Amazing. You guys were early there. And I think, Paul, I remember our friend Chris Hummel talking about that way, way yeah, back. Former, uh, former CMO talked to us years ago about sustainability and, and a roadmap from Schneider. Yeah. Yeah. Pioneers yeah. in sustainability. We're here with Mike Frazier, one of the inaugural ESG 50 winners from Constellation, Vice President of Sustainability Development at Schneider Electric. Thank you for being on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike and Frazier. And hopefully when we do Climate Week, you'll be at our dinner. I think we're going to do a dinner at Climate Week. So we'll talk more about Fantastic. that later. I think I think I was I think I was not supposed to talk about that yet. <laughs> anyway, breaking news from Thanks, Mike. Good Thank you all. Thank you. Schneider is an awesome company, um, and uh, oh yeah, uh, definitely a trailblazer in in terms of sustainability. Okay, what an honor. We have two incredible uh, final guests. We have Josh Baird, Edward Sullivan, co-authors of Leading with Heart. Josh Baird is considered one of the premier executive coaches in Silicon Valley for the last 25 years. Uh, John built his career coaching the C-suite companies ranging from Apple and Nike to startups like DoorDash and Masterclass. He's currently founder and chairman of the renowned executive coaching consultancy, Velocity. Joining John is Edward Sullivan, who's been coaching and advising startup founders, Fortune 10 executives and heads of state for over 15 years. Um, Edward's clients include companies like Google, you know, small company like Salesforce, CEOs, uh, you know. <laughs> Slack, and, and dozen of other fast-growing companies. He's the CEO and president of Velocity. You can follow Edward on Twitter at Edward L. Sullivan. Welcome, John and Edward, to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you both. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here, right? Velocity has been one of those organizations which have been kind of, you know, in the background, right? Helping some of the most amazing CEOs become even more amazing. And, uh, you know, what can we talk about here? I mean, it's been crazy, right? I mean, if we look at your book and what the conversation points here, I mean, you've got yeah. some great areas. 50% of people are actually looking for a new job right now. I mean, that is crazy. Leading yeah. lead yeah. in the environment where people are saying, hey, I need something more, right? I mean, this, is, this requires like in-depth, uh, you know, a soul searching about what the company is about or how do I lead or how do I get there? Yeah. I mean, and you're, you're CEO, you finally made it. What do you do? You call velocity, I guess. I mean, tell us what happens. <laughs> and, uh, what happens. Yes, right. Well, it, it's funny, right, about data. I mean, I love, I love the conversations that I've heard uh, just and, and the data focus. And oftentimes we don't think about, you know, culture and, you know, climates and safety and needs that people have around data, but we use engagement data to assess the culture and how things are going. And there's an ROI to work that we do, particularly with teams and organizations that need a reset, whether the culture isn't working. We work with a lot of cultures at times that are more toxic than they need to be. Um, changing all of that becomes a real challenge for leaders. And so data helps a lot. If you benchmark a team before you start work, do some work around trust, trust and building conversations. That's why we came up with the five conversations, which uh, Edward can talk about, uh, are so critical to building that psychological safety. So it's interesting how data often drives. And of course, you look at retention, you look at uh, teams that turn over, over and over again before companies go IPO. Those are not good things for board and for founders. It, there's an ROI to all of that. It costs a lot of money to recruit and keep people. And so if the team is not right and people's voices are not being heard and the climate is just not safe in a lot of ways, people leave, good people leave. And so that's sort of why we wrote the book, right, Edward? Yeah. Around those live conversations, yep. I mean, people are definitely leaving right now, right? Even though, you know, the economy is starting to slow down a little bit, we're actually seeing people, the great resignation rages on, right? 4.4 mm -hmm. yep. million people left their jobs in April or May. And 
study that was done in uh, January determined that by a 10 to one margin, people are leaving their jobs because of toxic work cultures, not because of comp, not because of benefits. You know, they want their leaders to lead with heart. They want to feel affirmed. They want to feel seen. They want to feel like they matter and belong. And, you know, we've tried our best to map out uh, a roadmap for leaders to involve their teams in connected conversations, to make them feel emotionally connected and committed to these organizations rather than just like they're getting a paycheck. That's a great, that's a great stats, scary stats. I think it was Brene Brown. Well, it was Steve Brené Jobs. Said, it was Steve Jobs who said the most powerful person in business is the storyteller. Mm-hmm. And it was Brene Brown who said great stories are data of the soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I hear John and you talk about the importance of data, and then at the same time talk about leading with the heart, how do you how do you coach senior executives to to share data in a way that cultivates that culture of belonging and mattering and 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 compassion how do you do that it's such a good question around the how how it's done because so much of the coaching work we do is around helping people transform their own leadership I do really like the idea of all of storytelling, right? If you get data that suggests that uh, the company's not as purpose-driven, what I liked about the previous interviews you had around both individuals talked about their purpose. I mean, Vala, sustainability and adding that as a value gives really good direction and purpose to the organization. So I think when we get data that is not positive data, we step back with the founders and the leaders and get them to begin to tell their own story. You know, getting back to the why, why did they actually establish this company? Connect more with the employees around that because data also suggests that employees stay in companies if they feel the leadership is committed to them mm-hmm. and also the purpose is compelling. People want compelling purposes. So I, I like it when CEOs can tell their story and define that story around ways to improve the culture. And it comes back yeah. a lot to purpose, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're seeing companies that if they don't have a purpose story, right, if they don't have a reason for their employees to feel like there's something to believe in, employees are leaving. Right. And we're seeing, I think one of the things that's fueling inflation right now is Silicon Valley raises, you know, all these companies are throwing more money and more equity at their top talent to retain them when really money's good and all, but give me a heart reason to stay. Make me feel like this is my team. Make me feel like this is where I want to do the best work in my career. Yeah. In, in yeah. your book, you wrote the five behaviors that transform leaders. Yeah. And you started with they are aware of their people's needs. The first one. And the fifth one was they connect with their core sense of purpose to help others right. find theirs. I just feel like, you know, to, to, so to me, there's a sense of um, beginner's mindset, humility, kindness and gratitude and, and, uh, and generosity to take the time. I mean, again, you guys are coaching the, the most senior executives. And these folks probably sleep four hours a day, seven, <laughs> seven days a week. So for them to leave with the heart, you must create a framework that they appreciate so much that they're willing to sacrifice some of their mm. firefighting to really get to know their employees and their stakeholders. And I just find that fascinating. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the CEOs we work with, they say, but Edward, but John, we need to get this done. This <laughs> needs to get done. I need them to do that. I need them to do that. And they're never asking the question, but what does my team need to get it done? Mm-hmm. So we're trying to flip that question, trying to get them to think about what do their teams really need as a foundation to feel creative, resourceful, and committed. And that's why we start you know- book with that conversation mm-hmm. yeah i think it's, it's just interesting oh go ahead go ahead ray yeah good yeah i was just going to say that there's there's a real um sort of practice that we talk about a lot we peel back the onion a lot i think with our our leaders lots of things that don't get out <laughs> into the all hands meetings etc right but but you have to peel back the onion a little bit to get into the story and the purpose mm-hmm. we have this uh this sort of way of thinking about um employees with leaders, we say, get curious and not reactive because mm. you know, the day in the, and Edward said it, the day in the mm. life of the CEO is just stuff is coming all the time mm. at them. 
And again, we talk about the need for energy and rest and nutrition so that you can be ready to respond. Mm -hmm. But the idea of getting curious means that we have to sort of work with, with leaders to say things like, wow, I didn't know that, or tell me more about that, or boy, that was a surprise to me. Boy, that must have been really difficult. They don't peel back the onion enough. They don't get curious enough. Our, our speakers beforehand talked a lot about bringing people along. You don't bring people along with change, particularly cultural change, unless you listen. Mm. Too many employees are leaving, to Edward's point, because they don't feel heard or valued. And it's interesting how a five-minute peel back the onion, getting curious and not reactive moment can actually change the dynamic and the conversation, as we say. I want to go to a book, uh, a, a word that you use a lot in the book, which is really empathy, right? Mm. It, it's capturing a lot of what you're saying here. And, and I thought that was very important because, you know, it's really different, right? I mean, in terms of how organizations work versus maybe 10 years ago. And so when you put that out and project out five to seven years out, right? Where, where is empathy, right? Where does that play a role in terms of these organizations versus companies that might be less empathetical? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we hope obviously from our book and from the work that we do and from uh, the work that a lot of other great coaches are doing, that empathy becomes the center post, right? Of the American workplace and not this thing on the fringe. John and I were having a discussion today that there's still this idea of hard skills and soft skills, right? One of the most important classes uh, business school students take at uh, Stanford, they call touchy-feely. It's this touchy-feely. whole empathy, getting to know people, right? And like our job, our mission is to make the conversation about empathy, the conversation about relational skills, the center point. And all the other technical skills are ancillary to that. Because in today's workplace, if you don't have great people skills, you're lost. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think the soft skills, as we, if we call it that, are the hard skills. It is so hard to have difficult conversations, yeah. conversations with <clears throat> courage, as I think it was uh, said, he sh- uh, talked a little bit about courage. You need courage. Leaders need courage. You don't do that without uh, really stepping back and, and, and having a sense of, of heart and, and ways of doing that. And so when we coach people, coaching them around these difficult conversations is some of the most difficult work that we do. They either avoid them or they don't mm-hmm. do them well, or they have other people do them. They rarely have them often with the team. And one of the things we do that Edward and I do at Velocity is we, we, we brought you know, questions around some of these conversations. And they can be the way in which you have business conversations as well, with heart, with courage, with honesty, with transparency. Uh, too many people, as we said, are not being heard. And, and that is a critical dimension to success with leadership. John Edward, why did you write the book? Were you just tired of consulting poor, poor managers? I was going to say shitty, but I wasn't, you know, I want to be, be polite. Did you just need something that would scale and get the business world to realize values, create value? And we just mm. need to stop, uh, you know, pushing hard. And, and be a little bit more empathetic and mindful, especially what we've gone through in the last three years. Yeah. You know, health crisis, economic crisis, racial injustice crisis, mass dissemination of information, misinformation crisis, climate crisis, which we talked about with the last guest. It just seems like there's a deficit in trust. Mm-hmm. And if you're not leading with the heart, I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can communicate. You can't build trust. You, you can't, can't build trust yeah, about that, right, Edward? Trust. I mean, that's, yeah. 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 I mean, we ultimately wrote this book because we think the American workplace is broken, right? Wow. We find that wow. That's, a big, very, very that's a big statement. I would add very broken to that. It's wow. very broken. Wow. Most people waste that's more than half of their energy pretending to be someone else in the workplace. Oh, they show up with this whole veneer of executive presence. They've got to try to be this person who they think they need to be at the office. And what happens if we all just relax a little bit? What happens if we feel safe enough to be ourselves? We're more creative. Our prefrontal cortex is more activated. We're less activated by the F word, fear, right? And oh, that other F word. <laughs> There's another right. one of those too, right? Right. I, thought I was going a different direction there. And yeah, yeah right. And like, you know, I mean, if people could really show up as their true, honest, open mm. selves, imagine the work they would do. 
The American workplace is broken. That might be the title of my ZDNet article. That's could be a good one, right? And yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting with that, Edward. Just to add to that, the the chapter on fear. Yeah. They all gifts gets a lot that we're not utilizing the gifts of others or realizing our overdone gifts or hiring your gaps. All those that, that chapters I, I love too. Mm-hmm. But the fear chapter is getting so much. Uh, just buzz. People just are talking. And Brene Brown has given, to your point, Val, has given a lot of validation to being vulnerable. Yes. Um, yeah. But and you, th- there's boundaries to vulnerability. We talk about mm-hmm. that. There's some people no. who disclose too much I- information, mm-hmm. but the fear <laughs> is there. The, the toxic cultures are what Edward said. It's the fear that if I say that, yeah. I'll get shot, or my job will be over, or I'll never say it, but I'll leave. Yeah. And uh, maybe say it online about yeah. the company. Uh, but it's, it is a big part of, of, of leading with heart is dealing with the fear and having those conversations. Yeah, it was said, I think, by Seth Godin, people are not afraid of failure. They're afraid of blame uh, and, and that culture of fear. But you wrote one of those five uh, behaviors to transform leaders. You said leaders uh, who can leverage their unique gifts and help people find their own. When I reflected on the best managers I worked for, that really stood out for me because they were able to uh, remove the blind spots that I had about certain skills that I didn't know I had. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I'm an electrical engineer introvert who spent the first 10 years of my career writing code in a cubicle. I never thought the first evangelist hired at Salesforce. Um, so, you know, my career started with completely, you know, locked up in an R&D lab <laughs> to doing this. Uh, and it was great managers who saw. Who helped that. Yeah, yeah who helped me just become comfortable with tapping yeah. into areas that I didn't even know existed. Go ahead, Ray. Go ahead. Well, no, and a great CMO. I mean, uh, you can't forget that. So, but, but this core sense of. Average CMO. Help. Average CMO. <laughs> I did rebrand a multi-million dollar company, but anyway, that's it. You know, it's it's funny with with gifts on that one, Um, Vala, it's interesting. Um, I think Apple does a pretty good job of that, right? Oftentimes uh, when people are not performing well in a a job, rather than giving feedback or finding a role in the organization that better fits their capabilities and allow them to grow in that, Apple does a lot of lateral moves and moves people into roles and begins to say, it's our fault. We haven't really done the right fit. They'll ask the question, what have we missed here? Um, And I like that. I like that. We use that a lot with companies to step back and ask the question, is there a better fit for that that. person? How can you as a leader develop the gifts of that individual better? Yeah. Don't have the center bring the ball up the court and don't have the guard get the rebounds. Exactly. (laughs) Position. Positioning. Yeah. 100%. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Well, you know, the other the other piece you guys spent a lot of time talking about was the fact about finding that core sense of purpose, right? And helping okay. people find theirs. Um, and it's getting a little bit harder to do that, right? And part of the, the question, if you saw the HBR, uh, you know, article on, on the, yeah. you know, talking about politics in the workplace mm-hmm. and dealing with, you know, all these different issues that are popping up there. Um, how do you address that? Are there any, is there any advice about that? Because mm-hmm. the polarization that you're seeing inside almost every issue that's popping yeah. up. How do you keep that culture and people still okay to be able to learn how to agree to disagree and build that in place while you're still being yourself, right? Because yeah. you might, some people bring a lot of themselves into the workplace. Others, <laughs> yeah. people do. Yeah, who they are. They can be someone almost, else. You know? It's now almost you know? a superpower to politely agree to disagree. I mean, you know. It's, yeah, right. Uh, you're right. Yeah. 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 And especially today, very difficult decision yeah. coming down from the Supreme Court for a while. Oh, oh yes. yes. Right? A if lot you're of in the office today and it's yeah. Yeah, yeah. regions in the country. Dynamics are just oh, really, yeah. yes, oh, yeah. for sure. The important thing here is for, yeah, so. the important thing is for leaders to address the fact that it's difficult for a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The, the important thing is for leaders to say, it's okay to have emotions. It's okay to have an emotional response to what's going on in the world. And we're going to make mm-hmm. space at this organization mm-hmm. for all of those responses. Now, we don't want to necessarily the workplace to be a place of you know, rabid political debate, right? But if you need to go home for the rest of the day because you're feeling very emotionally impacted by this decision, please do so. If you need to take care of yourself, please do so. I love your concept, Edward, of giving space. 
Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, and, and again, that's, I think that's what you do. I mean, we have some organizations during the, well, the Ukrainian situation with lots of people who had families allowing groups to talk about it, right. And have the conversation in a way that values different opinions. Uh, just doing that in an organization is a great way to acknowledge the fact that there's some people hurting in this situation yeah. on both sides. Great, great advice. John Edward, great we advice. could talk, we could talk to you for oh hours. Hours. It. And Bella, you I don't know your introverted side. I did not see that today. No. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I, I maybe one of the other skills I'm a good actor. Oh I don't know. <laughs> this was so delightful and so fun. We learned Authors of Leading with Heart, our book just launched. Check him out. You can find Edward's Twitter at Edward Sullivan, and you can get the book where books are sold. Catch it out on Amazon as well. Leading with Heart, five conversations that unlock creativity, purpose, and results. And the book came out just three days ago. Make sure you get a copy. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much, John. Oh, this was delightful. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Ray. Sir. Thank Thanks, you. Ray. Thanks, Bala. Thank you. Hey, thanks. That was Awesome. Uh, wow. All, all, all four guests, but I'm telling you, uh, uh, you and I, we, we probably should focus more on guests like John and Edward because uh, learning about how to become a good manager and a good leader, I mean, I, I, it took me probably being a manager 20 years before I actually, I think, got a hang of it a, a little bit. <laughs> so, 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 uh, Okay, uh, the importance of emerging technologies and the data stack and the power shift to how that power shift now includes core values and viewing Earth and our planet as a stakeholder to leading with the heart, which should be a topic that every one of our viewers visits on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Ray, please recap the last hour for us. Darn. <laughs> no, we had some great conversations and uh, we'll catch up with our guests in the green room in a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, if we start thinking about what's important, right, you've got to measure things for that to be important. Digital starts with data. I think Sudhir did a great job talking about that and really why that's actually driving our ability to actually track things, understand things, create that change uh, and get to those abstraction layers. Uh, but when we think about what that means with ESG, you can't do any of that. You can't do any of that unless you can track, understand where we're headed, understand the impact, uh, which projects are going to be successful, which ones are going to fail. Uh, but that takes us to the mission and purpose. That's really important, right? And and really, there's leadership changes that are happening. Uh, and, and you do see that, especially in companies. And one of the things that we, and I think you and I have talked about in the past, is companies middle age out, right? They forget their purpose. They forget why they're there. They, they don't even know, like, you know, what's going on, right? And it really takes strong leaders to bring people back together, especially given how divisive things are all across, you know, every single topic these days, right? Things that you would think are divisive are very divisive and really coming from that sense of empathy i think is really important uh and you know i bet you we could measure that with some data as well and i think that would be useful but yeah i mean with some great speakers uh, some great topics uh, but back to you Vala. what do you think you know when i when i think of leading with heart i would just simply the two data points i would want to see is how many people do you mentor how many people do you sponsor because when you are a mentor and a sponsor you are volunteering your time to help folks uh, typically underneath you in the organization as a sponsor, accelerating their career by helping them get in front of the you know, key executives, earning a budget, headcount, influence. And as a mentor, just being a player coach with skin in the game, really teaching how to achieve better outcomes through reading, writing, speaking, and all the other skills that are necessary in business. So I don't know how you can lead with the heart, not be an active mentor and sponsor. Uh, and that's yeah, all the that, data points I would need to know you're actually care enough to help others uh, succeed. Uh, you know, we had a brilliant CEO, uh, uh, chief uh, sustainability officer, uh, who's driving Schneider as a world leader. And again, I could have talked to John and Ed for as long as we could. So uh, it was an incredible show. Next week, we don't have a show, 4th of July. We can Ooh, look at that. So, we take like three shows off a year and next week is one of them. So, so, um, but when you come back, because we missed the show, we're going to up our game. <laughs> no, we have Paul Doherty, group chief executive Ooh. technology and chief technology officer at Accenture. So Paul leads about what? 350,000 technologists at Accenture. Uh, so, you know, he's got a small group <laughs> and, uh, Keith, uh, Fitzgerald, uh, principal at Fitzgerald group will join us as well. And Isaac Skakalik 
president, chief information officer of Star CIO, and, and an author of Digital Trailblazer, uh, a new book. Exactly. The best and brightest authors tend to come to disrupt to share their work, and we love that. Uh, Ray, we're getting close to 900 guests. In a, in, a, in a month or so, we'll have 900 interviews since the inception of the show. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks, and see everyone back in the green room.